Rates and Barrels is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before games start, and because GameTime tracks prices in real-time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. It's time to start buying Christmas gifts. So whether you need college football bowl game tickets for a big trip around New Year's, NBA or NHL seats, GameTime has you covered. GameTime also has theater tickets, so use it to check out a show when you need a night away from sports. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. It's a two-tap checkout system. Like, that's Eno-friendly, folks. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 56. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Things are happening around Major League Baseball. There are players being traded. There are signings happening. We're here to break all that down in the wake of Monday's non-tender deadline. A bunch of other players became free agents when that passed as well. We do have some show-related news to pass along. You may be listening to us for the first time on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts now. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the show, please take the time to do that. We would greatly appreciate it. It helps new people find our podcast. And if you are listening to the show for the first time and you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. So tons to talk about this week. You know, it's kind of a, a nice little bounty of things to break down after a uh, big eating week last week with Thanksgiving. That's right. That's right. And unfortunately, I did not go home with any leftovers. So I didn't get to do any leftover sandwiches. But I found out this Thanksgiving that it's my house in perpetuity after this. So I am the new family Thanksgiving host, and so I will have all the leftovers going forward. That's awesome. Uh, I recommend the spatchcocking technique for uh, cooking oh, yeah. your turkey to avoid the oh, drying yeah. out. It's, uh, it's a nice little technique, so you have to. That's, that's the correct way to cook anything. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it also grosses the kids out when I rip that neck out. There's a Bob's Burgers that I saw in the last couple of days where where Bob, of course, spatchcocks a turkey, and uh, after after he breaks the like the breastbone, the ribs, whatever it is, like he, uh, he he just sends some like flying across the room, and it's classic. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's a good it technique. Feels pretty dirty. It feels pretty dirty, and the kids are horrified, but. Uh... It's, uh, it does. It definitely works. It's definitely the best way to do it. In fact, I I did a Thanksgiving a couple years ago where I did a sous vide turkey and a spatchcock turkey, and uh, the taste test went 100% to spatchcock. That's awesome. I, uh, I'm really happy to hear that you've done the test and you've proven 
what I believe to be true. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about some of the big moves that have happened over the last couple of weeks. Last week, we had a special episode. We took a look back at the all-decade fantasy baseball team from 2010 to 2019. So there were some things that happened that would have been in that episode had we not gone that route. Uh, let's start with the big trade that actually happened on Thanksgiving Eve a week ago Wednesday. The San Diego Padres Milwaukee Brewers hooked up on a big deal. Trent Grisham and Zach Davies went to San Diego. Luis Urias and Eric Lauer went to Milwaukee. And it seems like the Brewers, either players that have been on that team recently or were just on that team literally two months ago, have been kind of in the, the thick of all the early activity in one way or another. Uh, this seemed like a pretty interesting challenge sort of trade. I know there's some financial flexibility opened up for the Brewers with Davies going to San Diego and Lauer being a, a min-salary player. But Grisham for Urias, I mean, this is a trade that, in terms of young players and how they were valued this time last year, we probably couldn't have seen those two guys get swapped for each other one for one. So it's pretty fascinating to see them get swapped for each other just a week ago. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of eerie how close their batted ball stats are. Uh, neither one hits the ball with average oomph in terms of exit velocity. In fact, they have the exact same exit velocity. Did you did you point that out to me? Yeah, well, the the Padres replaced Urias with a, another trade. They made a deal for Jerks and Profar. Profar and Urias have the exact same average exit velocity, and Trent Grisham was at 87.6, so he's within like a mile per hour of those two guys. So even though you know we saw Urias and Grisham hit a ton of home runs in the minors in 2019, they were not hitting the ball very hard during their time in the big leagues. And so you kind of have to like look around the exit velocity for their player value. And in terms of, you know, what they can do, uh, Urias is, when it comes to stuff other than uh, hitting the ball hard, Urias is is, uh, superlative, is is better than Grisham. In terms of he can play on the middle infield, uh, our own Emily Walden wanted to point out that she thinks he's a second baseman, um, and I I can hear that, uh, but I think for the Brewers, he's their shortstop. And... um, he, so he plays, uh, he, at least he has more defensive value than Grisham. Uh, and he also makes more contact than Grisham. And, uh, you know, maybe in pa- terms of patience, Grisham is a little bit out in front. Uh, and in terms of team fit, uh, might have made sense for the Padres to acquire an outfielder. Because even though they had a ton of outfielders, Grisham is now the only outfielder that they've had in the last two years that is projected next year to be league average. So it seemed like they had a lot of outfielders, but if you start looking through them, you're like, eh, hmm, eh, what? So I'll let you decide who the what is. Uh, but uh, now they have uh, a league average guy. I think they'll play him in center. So in a, in a weird way, both teams are going to play these guys at the very top of their possibilities, at first at least. So Grisham probably is a corner outfielder later, Maybe he can play center for now. Urias is probably a second baseman later, but he'll be a shortstop for now. 
what's also interesting is they're both projected to be two-win players next year. They're both projected to be league average players next year. So in terms of projection, in terms of you know ease of fit for each team, uh, in terms of what they do, in terms of exit velocity, they're very equal. But I, I think that there's going to be a clear winner for this trade in two or three years. And it's not going to have anything to do with the pitchers. It's going to be that one of these batters busts and the other doesn't. I mean, it's possible that both succeed, but Grisham goes into one of the most difficult places for a left-handed hitter to hit for power. Grisham has shown in the past that he can go the opposite way. When he first came up, like his first couple minor league seasons, he was probably going the other way too much and not getting to enough power. If you look at the pull rate, that's gone up as the power has gone up. So Mm -hmm. he may have to kind of find a happy medium between the player he was in the upper levels of the minors and what he was at the lower levels of the minors in order to be an ideal fit in San Diego. But I agree with what you said about that outfield 100% because they, they've had a crowd. No one in there projects to have a particularly high OBP other than Grisham. That was a major flaw. You can't have a bunch of 240, 290, 440 outfielders oh that are questionable defenders. That's not going to work. And I think they realize that. So... You know, with Urias, maybe they sold low. Maybe they see something in him that they don't think they can fix. Maybe they see a player that's just not going to hit that future 65 hit tool expectation. Uh, but it could be the kind of thing where a change of scenery for, for both players ends up being a good thing. And Grisham, you and I talked about it on the Brewers podcast after the season ended. The unfortunate ending to his season was the error in the NL wildcard game. In a weird way, I'm just happy for him that he doesn't have to carry that around with him in Milwaukee for the next few years. Cause I feel like that was going to hang over his head until there was some opportunity for him to have a bigger moment and come through. And that just may have never happened. So getting a fresh start for him seems like a good idea. Uh, the pitching Zach Davies from a fantasy perspective is a guy that I would trust a lot more in San Diego than I ever trusted him in, uh, in Milwaukee just because he doesn't miss a lot of bats and, you know, balls in play in San Diego aren't going to get punished quite the same way. Um, you're not as worried about home runs there. That's very clear as well. Uh, but Eric Lauer probably ends up doing a lot of the same things. Like the concerns you have about him going into Miller Park are kind of like the ones we used to have with Davies while he was there. The difference is Lauer at least has the ability to miss a few more bats. So I'm a bit curious to just see like what kinds of adjustments the Brewers make, if any, to Eric Lauer's arsenal. Yeah, it's weird to me, though, because when I just look at the numbers and the movements on their velo- and the velocities of their pitches, I'll take Zach Davies' pitches over Eric Lauer's. The, the, main, the main thing that Davies is missing is velocity. But in terms of shape and, you know, the way these pitches look and his command of them, I'll take, uh, I'll take Davies over Lauer any day. And when I actually, when I look through Lauer's pitches, I don't see a single pitch that stands out to me. The only thing that I think that Lauer has done well and the way that he's missed these bats is that he's thrown his fastball high in the zone, which is fine. It's great. It's, it's led to a lot of breakouts. It's led to a lot of more strikeouts. It's a big part of how the Reds have, uh, have revamped their pitching staff. But the problem is it comes with home runs and it doesn't uh, depend. It doesn't have like sort of a compliment where it's like, Oh, and he also throws a really awesome slider low in the zone. I don't like his breaking stuff. He has an okay cutter. He has a poor curveball. He has a mass slider. So he's kind of one of these three breaking pitch guys where none of the breaking pitches are that good. 
the fastball doesn't go that fast, but he throws it high in the zone and he gets a lot of whiffs there, but he also gives up a fair amount of homers there and that can only go up. So to me, Eric Lauer is not interesting. Uh, I think that his best asset was more years of control than Zach Davies and less money. And so that part, both, I think both are marginal fantasy players. I don't think I'd really want either. Maybe Davies on a deep league team. Uh, but in terms of fantasy and in terms of real life, I think this is all going to hinge on, you know, if Urias can pair the power with the with the uh, the good strikeout rate, or at least find himself as a hitter. Is he going to be the power hitter that strikes out twenty two percent of the time, or is he going to be the more Placido Polanco esque player that strikes out fourteen percent of the time, uh, but gets on base a ton and uh, and and has a single and double stroke? So. You know, I don't know. Uh, he's got to find his way. Grisham, to me, is a little bit more uh, just like a pretty good player. And so I see his ceiling is lower than Urias, but his floor is higher. And so that's why I generally uh, like it for the Padres. Uh, but I do think that it almost doesn't matter what we say now. It's it's all on Grisham and Urias, and they're going to they're gonna sort of prove us right or wrong in the future. Yeah, and the thing that really does jump off the page for Urias in 2019 is that the ground ball rate dropped a lot. Like when he started off in the Padres system, that ground ball percentage was up in the 60s. Every year up until 2016, got down to the 50s for 2016 and 2017. That brought him through double A, and he got that number down to 37.9% in the PCL last season, hit 19 home runs in 73 games. We know El Paso and the PCL and last year in particular with the Major League Ball being used at AAA, was an extremely hitter-friendly environment. But I think it's encouraging when you consider he's been young for his level at every single stop, was still just 22 years old uh, after turning 22 in June last season, and put up monster numbers. Like There's there's the potential, I still think, for Urias to be a star. And I, I think he'll be good enough at short where it'll work. It's going to be a lot like the trade the Brewers made uh, earlier in the decade, they made that deal to get Gene Segura. I think that was the trade that sent Zach Greinke uh, out of Milwaukee. But Gene Segura coming through the Angels system was this guy that some people thought he could play shortstop. A lot of people saw him more as a second baseman. And he's ended up being at least a, a decent shortstop for most of his time in the big leagues. I think that's probably what we're looking at in terms of Urias's defense. And now the potential payoff for him as a hitter is even greater with the move into Miller Park. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in terms of fantasy, he's definitely the one. Probably, um, probably going to be a little bit more expensive than Grisham, though. Yeah, it's got it's going to be kind of interesting because people were starting to warm up to Grisham before the trade, thinking about how much he might play, spelling Kane and, and spelling Ryan Braun, maybe seeing some Ryan Braun at first base this year. Uh, playing time goes up, situation. It's a little more difficult, though, in terms of a park factor. So maybe it's a net wash. Like maybe the counting stats end up being a little better because he's playing every single day instead of being more like a fourth outfielder with a little more playing time than the typical bench outfielder. Yeah, I still I think he's a starter. And in fact, I think that there was a little bit of an opportunity um, to game the system here because I'm seeing the death charts are putting him at under 500 plate appearances. And I just don't see the Padres making this deal and making him a part-timer. Like I said, he's the best projected outfielder out there. And there's still a lot of, of time left. So maybe this depth chart will change in the future. But I'd play Grisham over every outfielder they've got. 
And right now they have Franchi Cordero as 55, 51% in, in, uh, in center field. And I get that he's a left field, a left-handed uh, hitter that has played center field, but he's projected to be 26% worse than league average with the bat. He's projected to have a, a 284 OBP and just be exactly what you were talking about. You know, a 240 hitter, 290 OBP, maybe the power comes through, but he's projected to be below replacement. So I, I understand projections aren't gospel, of course, and Franchi has shown power, and the power is not really in the projection. It's kind of a, a league average power situation. Uh, so there's definitely more upside than that. But I guess my larger point is I look at all those names, and Grisham is the only one I want. Let's talk about another new Padre real quick. Jerks and Profar gets acquired in a separate deal just a couple days ago. Austin Allen, a uh, catcher, first baseman, kind of a tweener, defensively speaking, goes to Oakland. And the more you look at Austin Allen's profile, the more you're going to see that he's kind of a perfect fit in Oakland as a guy that'll probably get 200, 250 plate appearances and provide cheap power. Uh, so maybe more of a, a two-catcher league sort of guy. But Profar in San Diego, I mean, is there any reason to believe that he can bounce back after a disappointing 2019. This is going to be his third team in as many seasons. Uh, clearly a guy that A.J. Preller is familiar with since Preller was in Texas when Profar initially signed there. But back-to-back um, -back 20 home run seasons doesn't seem disappointing on the surface, but 218-301-410 was the slash line last year from Profar in Oakland. Yeah, a lot of it was built on a big, poor beginning of the season. If you look at Profar from May 3rd on, uh, he hit, uh, yes, 233 still, uh, but the Babbitt wasn't as bad. Um, and he had uh, 18 of his 20 homers after May 3rd. So the power came on afterwards. And, um, you know, the, the real nice thing about it was it was it was above average that way. The bad thing about Profar is just that he's not going to hit the ball hard. So I don't believe in much more. I don't believe in actually the power that he's demonstrated in Texas in 2018. So I think that 20 is the the cap on his homer total. I think probably seven to eight is a cap on the stolen bases because his wheels are declining. And um, what what he does do is kind of like uh, Urias in a way where he doesn't hit the ball hard, but he is going to be patient and he is going to make a lot of contact. And I think probably there's a little bit more certainty about his floor uh, than Urias. And, um, you know, they also got an asset in Grisham uh, by trading Urias. So I think they that I think they thought those two things through in tandem, uh, replacing Urias with Profar and, and uh, you know, reuniting Profar with Jace Tingler and A.J. Preller, the guys that that signed him in Texas. It, it, it may actually be a comfort situation. If you think about what happened with Sonny Gray last year. Part of what the Cincinnati Reds did was they said, hey, we're going to take you here. We're going to take your college pitching coach uh, and we're going to take a college teammate of yours and make him his your assistant pitching coach. We're going to make and we're going to have you start throwing in Vanderbilt, your old college. And that's how we're going to make you feel super comfortable. And we're going to think about how comfortable you are. So in a way, I think that the, even though it might sound like mumbo jumbo to some, Returning home to Tingler and Pro, uh, Tingler and Preller for Profar might actually be uh, a big deal, but 
like I just don't see the upside. Like I, his expat, expected batting average last year was 250. I expect him to hit 250. I expect him to do what his projections say. I don't really have any reason to quabble with those projections. 250, 18 homers, seven stolen bases, deep league second baseman, uh, decent player, league average kind of guy, but not very exciting. Yeah, so like in a 15-team mixed league, a guy you can take around or just after pick 200, and you know he's going to play a lot, so you're feeling okay about him there, but there's not another level coming. Like the, the days of expecting more from Jerks and Profar are over, and sometimes that makes a player undervalued in fantasy. You know, when mm-hmm. that ceiling seems to have gone away, people see an accumulator and they just brush him aside and, and they get downgraded uh, too much in, in some instances. Some other big moves, though. Yasmani Grandal, gone from the Brewers. Mike Moustakis, gone from the Brewers. Yaz goes to the White Sox, gets a four-year deal. I think we talked about the White Sox uh, a couple weeks ago, Eno, as a team that if they want to start spending money and they want to add a few pieces to address their needs in free agency, the AL Central is one of those divisions where you can make up a lot of ground very quickly. We saw the Twins do it last year. Uh, Grandal looks like step one in part of a, a multi-step free agent plan to turn things around on the south side of Chicago. Yeah, and this framing value should have some effect on their pitchers. So maybe it'll help Giolito keep from regressing too hard in the walks category. Maybe it'll help one of their young pitchers emerge. And also, uh, you know, I do think that that he's a really good hitter. I just, the one thing I wrote about in the thing is that Framing can fall off a cliff right around his age. Right around 32, framing starts to really age poorly. So, uh, you know, there is some chance that he ends this deal at first base. But I think it's one of those deals where he catches enough that he's a catcher for four years. Uh, He's been either the best or second best catcher the last couple of years. When you add in framing, I think from a batting perspective, he's probably sort of like a third or fourth best catcher. But I imagine that'll stay the same uh, for the next year or two. Um, that part of his game shouldn't age that badly. I mean, he has patience. He has pop. He doesn't strike out uh, 30% of the time. So um, generally a big fan of that move. Uh, but I did want to sort of point out that part of why people maybe didn't want to give him four years is that framing as a skill ages a little bit poorly after 32 years old. It still just baffles me that he couldn't get this exact same deal a year ago, and now he gets it in 2019, flipping the calendar to 2020. Uh, But relative to the contract the Reds gave Mike Moustakis, four for 64, I'd rather make that commitment to Grandal. I think his skill set, even with those concerns about how framing might age, especially for an AL team, is actually the better long-term investment. And maybe part of that's the the OBP factor as well, knowing that Grandal has become a player that takes a ton of walks. And even if you have to use him a lot as a first base or DH more likely down the road in the back part of that contract, he can still be at least average, if not a tick above with the bat near the end of that deal. Yes, I do think that's true. And if he can manage to be, you know, five... Six, seven percent better than league average near the end of the deal. He'll still be an average first baseman. So, yeah, I don't hate. I don't hate on the deal. Uh, I hate. I like it better than the Jose Abreu deal. But the Abreu deal, I think, is a little bit more about uh, the state of that uh, that clubhouse. Him being an elder statesman that everyone respects. uh, The kind of metronome type production he provides at the plate, possibly. You know, presaging a move to you know being the DH in the future, uh, but um, also sort of just keeping 
those young players happy and engaged and with a leader. I mean, what I've found in the past is that leadership has to come from a position player. The the position players and the pitchers just live separate lives. And so when you have a, a pitcher that plays every five days, a starting pitcher as your most expensive player and your de facto leader, it becomes awkward when he's not there because he's in the training room or he's that or this. But a guy like Abreu can 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 function as a figurehead and can uh, can be that uh, that leader. So uh, I know that it's uh, it was a bit much for him, but in terms of the White Sox remaining the White Sox, um, I think that it was important. But you know, for them, I think they're still searching for a center fielder. I, you know, I don't know. If, do you think that Robert is a, is a center fielder? I think he could be at least for now. And if you don't really like the way the defense is and that's something that's holding you back, you could always acquire a defensive center fielder, move him to a corner, shift things around. I mean, I think whether or not they add a multi-year solution in right will say a lot about how much they trust him in center field. Because if they go out and get Marcelo Zuna or Nick Castellanos to fill that spot, that to me says, okay, Luis, Luis Roberts, the guy in center field for the next three years or for whatever the life of that deal is, because things are going to be crowded at first base in DH between Grandal, Abreu, Andrew Vaughn coming up. But you go around this depth chart, Grandal, Abreu, Nick Madrigal, Moncada, Tim Anderson, uh, Andrew Vaughn joining the mix at DH eventually where Zach Collins, James McCann, a bunch of guys are going to rotate that spot now. Eloy, Robert, and then whatever they do in right field, that's a really good group of position players. Giolito had that breakout last year. Ronaldo Lopez still has good stuff, even though he hasn't put it all together, but maybe Grandal helps him along. Dylan Cease, good stuff, bad results. Michael Kopech's healthy. You know, there's quite a bit to get excited about, and they're linked to Zach Wheeler, too. If the White Sox were to go out and get Zach Wheeler and a corner outfielder, they become very interesting not only for the next few years, but immediately in 2020. And they're already kind of trending towards being a wildcard contender as constructed. You know what's an interesting name that I just thought of is Shogo Akiyama. Hmm. Because they're pretty right-handed heavy. Eloy, Robert, Anderson. Um, who else is writing? I mean, the only, the only lefty... Abreu. The only lefty is Zach Collins. A couple switch hitters with Grandal and, and Mankata. But yeah, yeah, the only true so pretty right-handed heavy. Shogo is, some people say, maybe not a center fielder, but he's a lefty and he gets on base. So he kind of adds to the top of your lineup and he eases some of that risk of not wanting to play Robert in center, maybe. And you could have uh, a, a cheaper situation where you have Shogo and Engel in a platoon in center, go with Robert and Eloy on the corners, and spend the $100 million on Wheeler. Yeah, that, that might be the way to do it as opposed to spending more for an Ozuna or a Nick Castellanos. And then you have to move some of your uh, your failed starting pitcher types into the bullpen, uh, find somebody there, uh, hopefully have some, uh, some pop-up uh, relievers come up. One thing that I do not trust, even though Eloy has seemed, and Robert and Anderson have seemed to have um, come up through their system and worked out, um, I do not necessarily trust their pitching development plan. I know they have some good coaches there, and so I don't want to disparage the coaches, but I also know that you know they're generally not on the forefront when it comes to player development, tech, uh, using pitch design to, to improve their pitches, 
Giolito had to go outside of the organization to uh, get where he is. So, uh, you know, I, I do want for them a better pitching strategy, like something, you know, even radical like what the Reds did with just basically importing all of driveline. Uh, they they may need to do something like that. But there are a couple good coaches in their system that I've got my eye on, um, and I think they can maybe get there. In terms of personnel, they're really, really close. So that's that's exciting. What was the other big deal that we were putting up against Grundahl? Uh, Moustakis. Oh, I mean, Moustakis, he gets four yeah. for 64 from the Reds, which... I, good for him. Like I'm, I'm happy for players getting paid. I, I try to make that as clear as possible. Like I'm, I'm trying to view teams and view roster construction the way that current front offices view it, while still, you know, rooting for players to do well when they get the opportunity to do well. If that's, uh, is it po- if it's possible for those two things to to happen, that's that's where I'm trying to live. Uh, but Mike Mustakas is going to play second base for the Reds. He played it and was fine there for the Brewers. He's a weird player to commit four years to at this point. And again, this is a player who was beat up in free agency, relatively speaking, in each of the last two off-seasons. Now he's finally getting what he probably deserved two years ago. And the Reds, I think, are going to get left holding the bag later in the contract, but they're pushing chips in right now, too. And when teams are trying to be competitive, we should celebrate that. Uh, But how do you see things kind of fitting... For Mustakis in the short term, I saw Mike Petriello put that uh, graphic up yesterday on Twitter. Yesterday being Monday, and apparently Mustakis would have hit five more home runs playing half of his games or all of his games. I think that example might have been in Cincinnati a year ago, so it would have been an even better fit for him than Miller Park, which is one of the most hitter friendly parks in the game. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he, most likely is he just sort of holds steady in terms of power, and in fact, uh, you know, I think that maybe we disparage his defense too much. I've seen a lot of people say he's not a very good defender, but you know, he's been a positive defender in seven out of nine seasons. You know, that's pretty good. Yeah. And in terms of just theoretically, uh, second base and third base are supposed to be equally difficult. Now I know that doesn't mean that's theoretically and not necessarily in practice, because I think they do require slightly different skills in terms of lateral quickness uh, and arm strength. However, with the way that we treat shifting these days, I feel like Moustakas, you, you know, maybe lateral quickness isn't as important at second base. And um, if you're worried about him on the turn, you know, since teams are shifting 50, 60% of the time, just don't make him the guy that would have to make the turn. You know, because when you're shifting, you're putting all these people in different places. You could put uh, Suarez at short and Galvis on the other side of, of second base, and those two become your uh, your your double play duo, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that they can mask Mustakas' defensive shortcomings in, at second base. I think they can make it work. I think the power will work. Uh, Mustakas has a lot in common with Justin Turner in terms of making contact, making powerful contact, being there every year, year after year uh, in terms of uh, of those things. Um, but at the same time, when you look at sort of projected wins and what, how much they, they paid, they did pay about $8 million per win, which is, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that teams have been doing for Harper and Machado and, and stars. So four plus win guys, and he's more like a three minus win guy. So I think that's what, where everyone's difficulty is in sort of looking at that and those numbers and saying, 
does that fit with that kind of player? Because once you get into two win guys, those guys absolutely do not get $8 million a year anymore. Uh, and you can just see it by all the non-tenders. Kevin Pillar, uh, projected to be close to a two win player, was going to make $9 million. Cut. Uh, Domingo Santana, sort of a 1.2 type win player, was going to make $4 million. Cut. So if you are a one to two win player, you, you're going to get four or five million per year. If you're a four win player or higher, sort of Anthony Rendon and Garrett Cole, you're going to get your eight million per win. I think there's not that many people that are in between the two groups, so we don't always know how to, to appraise them. Well, I think it comes down to teams thinking they can fix a small flaw with a player at the bottom of the scale. You know, buy that player at a discount, two million, three million for a year on a one-year deal, maybe less than five in some cases, whatever, something in that range. And you make a tweak, and you can turn that player into a two or two and a half win player. But you don't know how sustainable that's going to be, so you don't want to make a long-term commitment, and you don't have to make the long-term commitment. So it's just again thinking about how teams are trying to view the player pool. So yeah, we're seeing a stars and scrubs approach by a lot yeah. of front offices with That's roster it. construction. Like yeah. when we have a, a fantasy baseball auction, there are players that go for a dollar or two who are projected to be worth seven or eight dollars. Yeah. It's because we're going to spend more at the top of the pool. We're going to spend fifty-five to get forty-seven dollar Mike Trout because spending the eight extra dollars to lock in those forty-seven is well worth it, knowing that there's going to be a bunch of seven dollar guys available for a dollar or two dollars in the end game. Yeah. And I like to leave myself you know, $2 per slot at the end so that I can get all those $1 that are actually worth $8 and get everybody that I want. Um, and that does sometimes take me out of some of the very top guys, and that's a decision I've made. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of what's happening in actual baseball, I think it's much more closer to stars and scrubs. And I think Philip Irvin is an interesting example because we're looking at Philip Irvin as a guy who's going to be basically the fourth outfielder in um, in Cincinnati, and uh, he's a 40 future value guy, which is not a top 100, not even a top 200 type guy. He's a 40 future value guy in fan graphs. And yet he's been worth half a win basically per year in the last two years in limited playing time. So I think that suggests that teams can feel like I have a Philip Irvin. I don't need to pay Domingo Santana $4 million. I've got a Philip Irvin who can come up and do pretty much the same thing uh, for, for $500,000 and save me $4 million. So, yeah, I think that's uh, it's a little bit part player development, uh, a little bit part just being cheap. Um, and, and also, uh, you push all of these non-tenders out onto the market, they become free agents and you can you can and the free agent market has already been sort of throttled. So you make them you put them out on this free agent market and it's cheaper to, to acquire them. So there's a cynical way of looking at this and there's just a sort of structural way of looking at it. Uh, but either way, I do think that most of these non-tenders are going to get jobs, uh, and it may end up good for them to change organization, get a new coaching voice, get a new opportunity, uh, play somewhere where they'll play full-time. Uh, but um, it is also interesting that, like, for example, the Baltimore Orioles really didn't need Jonathan Villar. Like, yeah, they do. He was their best player. He was projected to be above league average. Of course they could use him. He was only going to be paid, like, $12 million dollars. Why don't the Orioles keep him if if they can't get anything for him? That some of this stuff makes me a little angry. It's just it's so weird that contending teams wouldn't give up 
whatever it was the Orioles wanted at the trade deadline to get VR. And now the Marlins have them. Marlins have Jesus Aguilar, too. Two guys that were on their way to being non-tendered. They end up with the Marlins, I think, on waiver claims, technically, is how they got there. But uh, So it looks like the Marlins are kind of recreating the 2017-2018 Brewers in a couple of ways. And <laughs> they're nice players. Like they, Aguilar had a year that was just frustrating for a variety of reasons. Didn't really get it going in Tampa Bay after the time in Milwaukee. The X stats were better than the actual results by a pretty wide margin. The K rate actually improved last year. The walk rate improved. Uh, didn't hit the ball in the air as much as he did in 2018, but that seems like a flyer worth taking. And I think the the thing that's tricky is like if those players don't return more than Jake Faria, or in the case of VR, don't return anything at the trade deadline, it makes it really difficult for a non-contender to hold them all year if it's not going to be enough to put them into the wild card race, you know, it's like, you're not really spending the money on them to get an asset later. You're only spending the money on them for the 2% outcome that you're actually at the high end of your win total and somehow in the mix to make the postseason almost unexpectedly. I just reject the It's just 2% because he, he was a four win player last year. So I don't, I know projections say he's a two win player this year, but I don't think it's a 2% likelihood that he's a four-win player again, you know? And a, and a four-win version of VR has got to get, you know, some return at the deadline. I don't know. It's probably a, a prove-it sort of thing because of the crazy drop-off from 16 to 17. I mean, he went from a three-win season in 2016 to being below replacement level yeah. in 2017, back up to being a two-win player split between the Brewers and Orioles in 2018, up to a four-win player last year. I think there's... Definitely more reasons to believe than to not believe in VR, though. You know, I mean, if you're a team like, like why why aren't why aren't the Indians in on Jonathan VR? Like they need a second baseman, or they need or, or a third baseman, either one. They can play Ramirez at the other spot for twelve million dollars. They can't afford him, like just well, for one year. It's a one yeah. year commitment. You're not you're not throwing you're not throwing Mustakis money at there. That, that, I think this is where people get the most frustrated. I mean, if you're a player in this environment. And you're getting non-tendered in your first or second arbitration year because you had a down year. Like you're getting squeezed pretty bad. Like mm-hmm. four million dollars for Travis Shaw really isn't that much. Like I know 2019 was horrible. I I watched it, but his 2017 and 2018 still have to be worth something. We talked about this when they were making the decision to bring up Keston Hira. Like being a three and a half win player in back-to-back seasons in 2017 and 2018 shouldn't be worth absolutely nothing in 2020 just because of a a partial season where everything fell apart yeah and they'll i mean they'll get picked up but it'll be probably less than four million and 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 every time a transaction like that happens it depresses because the way that the market works you know is that you're defined against your peers and you're defined you know in arbitration that person made this much that person made this much by non-tendering these people they're going to push the arbitration numbers down and they've you know pushed the free agency numbers down. So Travis Shaw is now going to get like a $2 million contract. So the next 28, you know, year old corner infielder coming off a bad year with two good years in the pocket is now going to say, Oh, I get Travis Shaw's deal, you know? Yeah. So it kind of all perpetuates itself. Um, and so the non-tender deadline was a little bit upsetting to me. I mean, there's, there's some really good names on here and we have, we have them listed here. And I think, you know, for me, the ones that stick out as having fantasy value next year, I mean, CJ Crone happened to him twice in his career. 
Uh, Domingo Santana could end up somewhere good. I think Travis Shaw could be if you know if someone employs him. Uh, Kevin Gossman, I think, could be a very good reliever. Um, and I still believe in Blake Trinan's stuff. So, you know, there's some names on this list that I think will return positive fantasy value next year. Yeah, I mean, I, you could almost make an entire lineup out of these players. Yeah. Crone at the one corner, Travis Shaw at the other, if you had a DH spot. I mean, Michael Franco, I, I tweeted this out earlier today. His early career numbers, his age 23 to age 25 seasons as a hitter, they don't look any different than Mike Moustakis' age 23 to 25 seasons. Like I, I know that we've talked about the Phillies as a team that are doing some really interesting things with development now and their tech with hitters. Maybe he missed that window. Like Maybe he was too far along already when that was implemented and it didn't work. And maybe it'll never work for him. But I have a really difficult time looking at a player who strikes out about 15% of the time who draws at least some walks. He walks 6 to 7% of the time. He walked more this year, I think, because he was hitting 8th, so you can't look at that bump and say, oh, he's more patient, he's drawing more walks. There's there's something there. Like there, He's the kind of guy, if you're a team and you need corner help, you take Michael Franco. You take that chance and see if you can be the one to unlock further potential there because he could become a 30-plus home run guy still. I, I still believe that is within the range of outcomes for a player like that, and to take that chance for three to five million dollars for one year you have to take that if you have the need yeah uh you know there's some defensive liability concerns there i guess in terms of um you know where where he's going to play uh he was already kind of uh, they were kind of trying to move him off a third i think a little bit um but yeah he hits the ball hard and you know cj crone was in the top 5% of the league in barrel rate. He hit the ball 91 last year, and he had a 15% barrel rate. That's what you pay him to do. Yeah, he cut his K rate last season from 25.7 and 25.9 the previous two seasons to 21.4. So he made more contact, and when he was making contact, he was barreling the ball more than ever. But then you kind of go over and try to look at you know the, the depth charts and say, okay... You know, what contender could pick him up at first base? Well, the Nationals. Actually, the Nationals show up twice because their second base and first base situations are bottom five in the league right now. Maybe that changes if you swap out Wilmer Defoe with Carter Keboom, um, as they might do uh, at, at the top of that depth chart. But over at first base, they have someone named Jake Knoll, uh, who's projected to be one win worse than replacement next year. So I do think that the Nationals are going to play this game where they, they they catch the falling stars, you know, and I think they could put Franco at first and hope for a, a multi-year solution or just take a year of Crone and, and stick him in there. Even though he's a right-hander, just just take, it, take him for what he's worth, you know. Uh, the Brewers right now show up at 28th with Ryan Braun at the top of their uh, projection. Um, you know, I think that the, the Red Sox have some flexibility with Michael Chavis. Um, and then everyone's favorite whipping boy, the Tigers are going to take whoever everyone else leaves, leaves out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the stupid thing that has happened, it's like, it's okay to not contend for a little while. Like we've, we've just said, as long as you do it the right way, rebuilding is fine. And that excuses a lot of teams from spending money on these interesting players and continues to depress them year over year mm. salary wise. I mean, cause the tigers, 
basically the all non-tender team is better than their starter at just about every position right now. Like, would you rather take the chance on Travis Shaw or would you rather give 500 at bats to Duel Lugo? Hmm. You know, would you rather run out Jose Peraza or Cesar Hernandez at second base or would you rather play Nico Goodrum? Maybe Goodrum is an exception. Maybe maybe up the middle with Goodrum and Castro, they're interesting enough. But they've got they've got holes all over the place. First base, I mean, Jaimer Candelario. You got to tweak the incentives. I mean, this is a game. This is a game. If if you're fantasy league, if you had a fantasy league person that was tanking like this and was was running out Ahiri Adrianza at first base, then you would do something about it because you can change the game. So I don't know what it is, but th- I think there is something for baseball in terms of a salary floor. That could be part of the solution. I mean, the teams are, uh, this is, I mean, you've, you've played in a dynasty league with Tom Trudeau. We've, we've talked about him on a, a few episodes over the, the season, but he's one of the best dynasty players out there and he plays for the future. And if at any given time when he's not competing, you look at his lineup, you're going to see a bunch of guys who, probably take zeros because they're not even playing in the big leagues yet because there's no penalty for playing in a dynasty league that way. Most dynasty leagues you play in don't have something where you have to pay three or five times the buy-in when you're in the bottom few spots in the league, right? It, it, there's no, there, there is no penalty. You're right. There's, there's, there's no also no, there's no baseball corollary to that. Like, you know, the Tigers have to pay more because they're worse, but uh, there's no way that you can throw that into the incentive structure. But uh, I am a little bit interested in these uh, soccer-style tournaments. Basketball is apparently considering doing like a preseason, uh, cutting some regular season games and maybe doing some preseason, maybe even during season tournaments, like mini tournaments. And I don't know what the reward can be other than maybe increased attendance and gate receipts. But... That might be a fun way to incentivize teams to remain good. Uh, you know, in, in soccer, in England, you have the threat of relegation, but you also have what's called like the FA Cup, which is like a totally just, it's like a separate thing than the regular standings. But you have a chance uh, to, to win in that. And I think even sometimes play uh, teams like that you wouldn't expect to uh, get a new player midseason because they're doing well in the FA Cup. And there's money at the end of that for them. So, you know, baseball doesn't really like uh, change much. And maybe this is too much change I'm considering. Maybe a salary floor is is actually a lot easier to to come to do. But, you know, teams lose a lot of fans and they don't get them back quickly. They lose a lot of fans when they tank and they don't get them back quickly. And that means the sport in general loses fans a lot when they go into these rebuild cycles. And they don't always get them back. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that the powers that be at Major League Baseball look at the sport as financially bulletproof because of the huge TV deals they've been getting over the last few years. And I don't think that's going to hold up if there's a labor stoppage again. Like, if there is a stoppage after the 2021 season when the CBA expires, I think you're going to lose some fans for good again. Like That happened last time there was a strike. Right, like there are definitely fans that left and never came back, and for some that did, it took a long time before they did. So, if they screw this up, they, the powers that be, the owners, the commissioner's office, if they screw this up, there actually could be a long-term ramification. There could be something very negative for them in the long run. The health and well-being of the league could eventually suffer. 
there could be this level of arrogance there. They might just think that anything they do is going to be fine and people are always going to watch baseball, but I think they're wrong. Yeah, and just looking at this depth chart, like why did the Twins, like what the, and, and the, the, there's what we're talking about with rebuilding and the Tigers and stuff, but why did the Twins cut CJ Crone? Like, I don't get it. It's Marwin Gonzalez and Ahiri de Adrianza now at the top of that thing. And yes, they may want to shave a million or two off and play the game that the Brewers are playing with Eric Thames. But now if you look at the free agent list of available first basemen, Eric Thames looks good. He's at the top of the list. Yeah, he compared favorably to Jose Abreu last year in terms of his output. Abreu actually got paid, but he was in unique circumstances with the White Sox. Yeah, I think so. But Thames and like I think that Abreu is a little bit too far in the other direction. But Thames and Crow now are the best first basemen on the market. They're the only first baseman on the market. Justin Bohr went to Japan. CJ Crone might get more money in Japan. Like that's that's the truth. Like that's the that's, that's the sad truth of of Major League Baseball are, right now. And there are teams. The Twins are 18th on the first base depth chart. The Angels are 19th. The Padres are 20th. These are teams you've taken punt first base too far, people. Like these are there are wins to be had and you and these are the Red Sox are 25th. These there are wins to be had and these are these are teams that want to win and now there's two first basemen out there. Maybe three if you count Travis Shaw. You could count Wilmer Flores, maybe. Maybe they just see the difference between Wilmer Flores and CJ Crone is negligible and if they can save $2 million and, and either keep it or put it towards somebody else, then that's just how they want to do business. But eventually that has to come back and I don't bite see you. That difference you, you can't live like that forever. That does not work forever. I think someone's going to get left holding the bag. I hope someone gets left holding the bag. Yeah. I mean, other than the players in this case, like that, right. but that's the most likely outcome. Flores $6 million option was declined. What was Crone projected to make? Seven million for Crone, right? But yeah, you're gonna try to save a million or two right there, and and take the chance on Mitch Moreland or Shaw or somebody somebody else who's depressed in that same range. Like the range of outcomes, all those players are so similar that you just take the cheapest one you can get. That's how teams are are viewing that problem, right? Yeah, and I and I get it, but there's also a reason that some of these guys are cheaper. I mean, Flores can't stay healthy. Uh, Shaw had a terrible year. Flores has never had a 600 plate appearance season. Yeah. I mean, part of that was that the Mets always put him on the small side of platoon, though, too. Right. I mean, that makes him hard to evaluate, too, because you don't know what his true, like, his true ability toward against right-handers is because it's like a collection of tiny samples. But anyway, Crone uh, should get five or six million it'd be funny they, they're just all gonna switch so like the brewers are gonna sign crone <laughs> everyone's gonna save about a million off of what they were gonna spend on options in arbitration <laughs> like everyone's gonna save a million dollars and the worst play it, it's like a game of musical chairs the worst player in the bunch won't get a job or will have to go to japan or the kbo right. and everybody else will make a little bit less that's how it's gonna work and every team's gonna feel good for saving a million they're, they're, they're cutting coupons these these are these are millionaires and billionaires cutting coupons there's yeah yeah that's that's the weird feeling and uh i actually think that this there is there are actually more teams that need first basemen than there are uh first basemen 
I, I hope. I hope it's that way. I hope. I hope it's musical chairs the other way, where there are yeah. teams like good teams that are like, oh crap, now we're playing oh, now we're a, a really bad war. player oh, at now, first base. Now Crohn's going to get eight, nine million. Oh, good job, guys. <laughs> anyway, um, I do think that uh, the most likely to actually, this is interesting. Who is most likely to get a starting job and have six hundred plate appearances next year on the non-tender deadline? From the non-tender player starting job, six hundred plate appearances. None of them. Uh, Cesar Hernandez is the most likely player for me. There are a handful of teams that need a second baseman. He gets on base, and that moves the needle. I mean, he had a three thirty three OBP last year. He's been the Indians. he's been as high as a three win player. Yeah, Cleveland could be a fit there. I, I I see him as an easy easy guy that you give the playing time to if you have the need at second base. Like, he could lead off on a good team and he just got non-tendered. Yeah. Yeah. That's really stupid. Giants right now are uh, slated to put Dubon at second. He's going to have a 305 OBP, 402 slugging. Cesar Hernandez can beat him in both of those. Teams that need second base help. I mean, the, the A's got a bunch of guys they could use to replace Jerks and Profar. Which was a little bit of a surprise when they made that move to get him in the first place. But they got Sheldon Noisy, they got Jorge Mateo, they got Franklin Barreto. They're all righties, so maybe maybe the A's do something. Cleveland definitely needs a second baseman. Seattle's not going to spend there. The Orioles don't care, so they're they're just going to do their thing. The Rangers could give up on Rugi. He's probably like the best all around player on the list. I think so. I, I think he, I think he's the guy player. you would most confidently project to be like a two to two and a half win player. From those position players, a lot of those guys have injury issues. That's you know part of the reason why they're there. Crone had the surgery. Yeah, the guy that's kind of a sleeper for me. I was kind of making a non-tender team. Kevin Pluecki, I think, is is still interesting. It's hard to find mm-hmm. catchers. The Indians didn't need him. They non-tendered him. Some team that needs a catcher, I think, is going to take that chance. He might hit more than you expect, and I think he's actually a good enough defender to be more than a part-time catcher. Yeah, and uh, I think Gossman is an interesting situation too because I don't think that um, I don't think that anyone's at fault here, and I don't think it's a gaming the system, and I don't think anyone's trying to shave a million. What happened is that Gossman he built up an arbitration number as a starter, and I think he's going to be a reliever. So nobody wanted to pay him like the Reds didn't want to pay him ten, eleven, almost eleven million dollars uh, because he wasn't going to be a starter for them. Right. So I do think he'll get a job and I think he might even get like a two and 10 type deal. And I think he could be a very good reliever, but I think maybe the ship has sailed on, on him as a starter. And he might be like a 75 to 80 inning reliever, like a higher end volume guy that you can throw out there a lot because he's thrown a lot of innings as a starter. Uh, But yeah, he makes a lot of sense. If you get him for two and 10, two and 12 total, I think it's a steal. People will be talking to him. And Trinan, I think, also, as much as, you know, there's been some debate about whether or not he's good or how many good seasons he's had. I don't, I've seen a lot of people say he's had one good season. I, I don't know what they're looking at. Uh, I see somewhere between three and four good seasons. And really, really only like two bad seasons, maybe? I the walk rate used to be a little high, so that pulls the war down a bit. But yeah, it's 2017, 1.4 wins above replacement, the monster 2018. Yeah, and like seasons of like 0.5 to 0.7 wins as a reliever, that's fine. That happens all the time. 
they're they're good relievers that do that. So I don't really I'm not looking necessarily war. I'm just looking at good strikeout rates, no like five walk rate or whatever, no terrible home run rate. Um, you know, he did have a bad season last year, but he I I still saw, you know, 97 mile an hour stuff with a lot of sink and um I would be I'd be I'd be ready to sign him. So I maybe his uh, arbitration number was pushed a little bit also by the fact that he had been a closer and saves definitely uh, factor in. So, you know, he was projected for an $8 million salary. I would expect that someone signs him for like three to four at least. Um, that's a, I guess that's, that's, that's more than shaving a hundred, you know, more than saving, shaving a hundred thousand or shaving a million off of it. It's, Maybe he isn't worth eight million because maybe he isn't, you know, all-star closer, you know, status anymore. There definitely the command goes in and out for him. But I would be, I'd be interested in signing him, and I could see him signing somewhere where he ends up, uh, you know, ends up saving some games because he does have that stuff. And I guess bullpens that really needed, like if he signed with the Blue Jays and then they traded Ken Giles, you know. Or if he signs with the White Sox. I mean, the White Sox, we were just talking about, they need relievers. They're, they're yeah. right there, but Colome and Bummer, you know, maybe one other guy, they need more. So uh, the Angels, you know, they don't really go that deep. If Hansel Robles takes a step back, uh, Butchery is not quite as buttery. And uh, Bedrosian's always hurt, you know, there's a path there too. So uh, I could see Trainen having some saves next year. I could also see Gossman as having some saves, but I think that Gossman has to like prove that he can do the back end relief still part still. And um, what you said earlier about him pitching more innings would make him more of a fireman, make him more of a sixth, seventh inning guy. Yeah. I mean, I get to see teams that are, are comfortable working relievers. Like if you trust your manager to handle the bullpen correctly, Kevin Gossman should be in your bullpen. If you're going to, do a paint by numbers bullpen. There's not there aren't many teams like that anymore. But if if you are one of those teams, then you shouldn't spend your money on Kevin Gossman because you're not going to you're not going to use him the right way. You're not going to use him enough. He's not going to be the right fit for you. Um, you know, Taiwan Walker was uh, also non tendered. I mean, he's he's an injury case, of course. It's a pretty bad injury case too because not only did he blow out his elbow, but then as he's coming back, he started having shoulder problems. So uh, that's going the wrong way on the kinetic chain a little bit. Um, but the the Padres, uh, while we're on bullpens a little bit, the Padres beefed up their bullpen um, by adding Drew Pomerantz. Uh, and, you know, people, I think, were rightly concerned with the four-year uh, aspect of the deal. Uh, but I would have given him 3-30, and 30, and he went for 4-30, and 30, basically. So I don't really care about the number of years. In that case, it just keeps the, you know, the luxury tax number down. And uh, the reason I would have given him three and thirty is he had more velocity than Adam Ottavino, he had a better strikeout rate than Adam Ottavino, and he had a comparable breaking ball. Not it doesn't look the same, but in strength and in features, in terms of velocity and spin and all that stuff, uh, it was comparable. So Adam Ottavino got I think what three and twenty seven or something from the Yankees. So. I don't think there's anything wrong with that Pomerantz deal. And, you know, now with Pomerantz, Munoz, and Yates, they go into the season with a really nice bullpen. I even like Perdomo as a reliever. 
Um, and they've got Wingenter and, and Castillo. They've got like really good pieces in that bullpen. They even have young guys that could end up in the bullpen later. Uh, and if they throw, if they break it apart, then maybe Pomerantz ends up saving later, or maybe he gets some of those lefty, uh, lefty saves on a day where they want to give Kirby Yates a, a rest. But you know, five to ten saves next year, really good numbers, really good in holds leagues. I expect Pomerantz to be a valuable player next year. Well, and having depth in that bullpen, I mean, being able to end the game potentially after the sixth inning when you have as many young starters as the Padres have about to graduate you're going to be monitoring those workloads carefully for the next couple Mm -hmm. of seasons that's a really good way to maximize the effectiveness of your starters anyway but their position if they want to start contending uh, is such that they really need to have a super bullpen because of the way that core is built you know maybe they go out and spend it and bring in a Strasburg or something that's that's where everyone kind of wants Strasburg to go just because it's a a return home in a lot of ways for him. But nevertheless, like, yeah, I, I agree. They have a loaded bullpen already, and that team is is absolutely one on the rise. Like, yeah, maybe they end up losing the Urias deal we talked about earlier, but there are a ton of other good prospects coming through that system, and the core is definitely coming into place in San Diego. Uh, Will Smith, you know, he's got a new gig. He's in Atlanta. That happened a few weeks ago, but I was really surprised to see the reports that Mark Melanson is going to open the season as the closer. I mean, it could be a case where the Braves are going to do the use the best reliever in in the spot where you should use them. And if that's a save, it's a save. And if it's the seventh or the eighth, then it's the seventh or the eighth. Like maybe that's what they're telling us. But I do like Will Smith, and I still think he has a lot of fantasy value with the move to Atlanta. Yeah, this Braves bullpen is fascinating to me because they've spent a fair amount of money on it. They've spent a a great deal of attention on it. It reminds me a little bit of the Baltimore bullpens, not only because they've got Darren O'Day in it, but because they've got a lot of different looks. You've got Darren O'Day throwing from underneath. You've got Luke Jackson throwing 55% sliders. You got Shane Green, who's like a little bit more of a traditional righty on righty guy. Um, you got Chris Martin coming in with excellent command. Uh, then you've got Will Smith and then Mark Melanson, kind of a throwback at the back there. And, I think it's a strong bullpen. I think it's a good one for baseball playing. But for fantasy baseball playing, I'm seeing a lot of uh, at least yellow lights in terms of Mark Lanson's strikeout rate is not good. He's lost the job before. His velocity goes up and down. He's an injury case. Uh, Will Smith should be the guy, but he's a lefty. What if they go back to Shane Green? We got a former closer in Shane Green. Luke Jackson saved like 15 games in him last year, you know? So what if they, and then what if they go super situational and they bring in Darren O'Day because they know this one guy has, can't see uh, submariners or whatever, you know? I could see it being a situation where Will Smith leads them with 15 saves. Uh, Melanson has eight. Shane Green has six. Darren O'Day has four, <laughs> and all of us go, oh. <laughs> I can't top that. That's very, uh, it's very true. It, it could, it could play out that way. I, I think the one thing that could open things up for Will Smith, if they're able to get AJ Minter healthy, to have him as another mm. hard throwing dominant lefty in the back, that would free things up for the the later spots for a lefty will smith's good against lefties and righties so it's not it's not like he's you know only gonna face lefties but right. I, I think i think for a bullpen to use a lefty for saves it means they have to have left-handed depth because if they have other situations ahead of that where they want to use 
someone else, you know, they have to have that someone else to actually pull it off. And in mentors, 2018 was pr- pretty lights out. They just don't really have that other lefty that, uh, and it's not, yeah, it's not just what happens. It's not just that Will Smith is only for lefties. It's that when you use Will Smith as a closer, then you don't have a situational lefty. So it's either, is it going to be Grant Dayton, you know, uh, who was, who was decent last year. Um, but in a small sample and throws 91, is it Minter going to be healthy and coming back and throwing hard? Does that open them up to to make Will Smith the closer? I do think those things matter. And uh, I do expect that Will Smith will lead the, the Braves in saves. I just don't know what the number will be. I would guess in the 20, low 20 range. And if the price reflects that, then I will have a lot of Will Smith. It's harder to get saves, hard to find 35 and 40 save guys anyway. I at least yeah. want one who's going to miss a lot of bats and probably give me good ratios. And I expect Will Smith to do both of those things. Yeah, that's. I mean, he's a good pitcher. He's 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 the best pitcher. I, I think that's underrated in terms of looking at these bullpens nowadays. It's just like, who's the best pitcher? Because like, think back to when Josh Hader was coming up, and it was like, well, he's not going to be the closer. Is he? You know, do you really want to draft him? And yes, yes, you want to draft him because he's the best pitcher. And eventually, it might have taken three years, but he finally got the most saves. <laughs> <laughs> It took Corey Knable having Tommy John surgery and <laughs> right. Jeremy Jeffers having a bad shoulder, but it did finally happen. It did finally happen. <laughs> no, it doesn't, hey, doesn't seem like you, that was their design. Ha- yeah, if you drafted Hater all those years, you, you still got value out of him. Yeah, he still helped your staff. He still was a good pitcher to have in your nine active pitcher spots throughout the season. Yeah. So that's that's I gravitate towards who's the best pitcher. Sometimes, and and also like... Don't listen to managers. They're liars. Everyone's a liar. I mean, yeah. like, like everyone associated with a team is a liar. And that this, yeah. this stuff has been driving me nuts over the last couple of days, right? There's reports that team, like I obviously follow the Brewers very closely. I write about the Brewers. The Brewers are undoubtedly going to spend less money. Like this is a Bob Nightingale tweet. I'm not trying to I, sub this the is, guy, but. That sent me for a loop because I got to write about the Brewers. Are they going to spend less money? What are you talking about? Well, yeah, and he was citing conversations with rival executives from the GM meetings. It's like, okay, so wait. So we know GMs do talk about their, what they're going to do. Like the Alex Anthopoulos stuff that came up earlier in the offseason kind of put a little spotlight on that. But do we think that a, a front office person like Stearns, who's generally, I think, considered shrewd and bright, is going to go around telling other teams what he's going to do? <laughs> Like does that does, like that does it pass that test? <laughs> also, like if you're in negotiations with a player with another GM and the and they have a player that's paid X dollars, of course you're gonna say, mm, uh, we I don't expect to spend a lot of money this year, so I don't think we want to spend X dollars. That's a negotiating tactic. <laughs> yes, like it's it. I just think if we if we sit here and pretend that we understand what any team is actually going to spend on opening day in 2020, we're yeah. we're lying. Like we're we just, we don't know. We we don't know exactly how much teams are making. We don't know exactly how much teams right. are going to spend. We know they have lots of money. We know they can all spend more than they do. We operate under those constraints. They operate under their own internal constraints that they do not share with the public. They just don't share yeah. that with people. The that, that's the only thing I was going to say is that the general managers do get a number. And they generally spend all of it. 
Yeah, why, why wouldn't you? Like, you, you want to keep your job. You want to you want to win as much as possible right. to keep your job, right? But you might save if you're like a really good contender, or a team like the Yankees or something. You might save three to five million for uh, the trade deadline. But otherwise, you know, Billy Bean said this right out. He said, "I'm going to spend every dollar that they let me spend," <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he gets relievers all the time because he he doesn't get a lot to spend. Well, and if, if you get Whatever it is you're going to spend your money on, if you don't win, you're going to want to be able to trade those players for future players of value. So if you know what other teams value, spend it on that. You never want to give up any ground in negotiation. You don't want to say, oh, okay, you know, I won't spend it this year, you know. Then then you don't get it next year. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. Like the <laughs> Brewers have gone to the playoffs in back-to-back years. Yeah, the payroll was at an all-time high, just over 120 Five, actually 127 million I think when you count the the buyouts that they had to pay on the options for Grandal and Moustakis and I know everyone's like Derek stop talking about the Brewers I'm just <laughs> using them as the example and this is happening for a bunch of teams right now no one knows how much your team is going to spend except for the owner and the GM and uh-huh. they're probably not telling anyone their actual number other than people in the inner circle how, how much of a how much of a difficulty would it be if you were Stearns to convince the owner to at least spend 120 million again? I mean, they were that close. Yeah, I also think there are some owners who are competitive and want to win. Like, I think yeah. those people do exist. <laughs> like, like these teams for some people are just like a plaything investment. They make money for them, but it's like, hey, it'd be it'd be fun to win a World Series while I own this team yeah. and make money. If it was only about making money, they could own any any business. We've we've come to a, a very interesting ranted. place in the show. The rants of this show <laughs> have ended. We'll move on to our beer of the week segment, which I feel like is always going to be a great segment coming out of Thanksgiving week. It was a uh, a drink your cellar week for me. Mm. I packed up a box, brought it home to my in laws, and, and tried a, a whole bunch of different things. And uh, fortunately, the spreading it out over a few days went a lot better than consolidating the drink your cellar on one Friday night back during the summer. <laughs> so it was a much more pleasant experience for, for everybody involved. But, you know, what did you get into uh, over the last week or so? I actually, I totally cleaned out my cellar and I brought it to family. Uh, and I thought, you know, this, they won't drink it because I brought like two sours and some hazy IPAs and stuff. And, they drank it all, <laughs> so I had to go to the, the store again the next day. But uh, I think the one that stood out for me was Modern Times had a sour called Singular Rhythms. There's a couple different versions. I've got like the blackberry one in the fridge now, but I brought the Nelson Hops one, uh, and it had uh, grape must in it and Nelson Hops, and it was outstanding. And I just love the way that Nelson brings that kind of almost mango-esque uh, peach maybe uh, feeling and brings it using, you know, green hops and it's not actually fruit that's put in there. So I don't know what grape must is, uh, but I must have it. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a kind of like a mellow Saison type sour, uh, but, uh, with that, that dry hopping in it. And this is something I've said in the past that, you can really get the quality of a hops when you drink a single hopped uh, dry hop sour because then that that hops really stands out and it's not 
blended in with other grains and you know the other um the, the malt and all that like it is in in the ipas so if you want to know what nelson hops taste like get this modern time singular rhythms with the nelson hops two thumbs up one of the beers that I did not bring with me was one I received on Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife's cousin has become a major craft beer fan over the last couple of years. And I was in the door for 30 seconds at Thanksgiving, and she handed me a beer from Equilibrium in Middletown, New York. It was a double dry hopped IPA. I think it was the Fluctuation IPA. And it was awesome. I mean, it was like crushable because it was fruity. But it had just such clean, like fresh hops. It was amazing. Like I really would highly recommend it if you're in a place where you can get it. I think she got it while she was traveling, so I don't even know what their distribution looks like. But it's Equilibrium Brewery, and it was good enough where I would trust pretty much anything from that brewery if I saw it. I would just blindly pick it up and and give it a shot as long as it you know hit the shelves in the last week or two. But uh, it was a really pleasant surprise because I was not anticipating trying new beer at Thanksgiving. I was expecting to drink a lot of my old favorites. Um, had Cassie and Sunset from, from 2018. Had a bottle of that. It popped open back on Thanksgiving Eve. Still really good. Probably my favorite of the Barrel Age Central Waters beers. A totally different corner of the world from the Equilibrium double dry hopped IPA that I had. But... Uh, yeah, it was a good, very good beer week last week. I've had an equilibrium. I had their D-Hop 8, and it actually was a hazy beer with zest pepper in it. Ooh. Uh, apparently, it wasn't one of their very best in the series, uh, but I was. it stood out to me. I, I can still remember drinking it. So I remember thinking, this is really good, except I don't really like the zest pepper, but you know, a plus for effort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one I had was a, a pretty like traditional hazy IPA, very juicy, uh, you know, mango, mm-hmm. pineapple, like just deliciousness pairs really well with Turkey. Hazy's pair perfectly with, uh, with Turkey. They pair well with just about everything, but, uh, light meats, especially big thumbs up on that. Uh, yeah. So. They crushed my, I brought some Moonraker some grass that was like a grassy. Have you, that, that's, I think actually not, done very often a grassy hazy beer you know um mm. would have worked really well and they liked it so i want to make one but i i've never had one yeah well it's hard to know exactly what the hops is that leads to that grassiness i i, I maybe i should know but i'm not a brewer but um you know they usually give you a hint like calling it some grass yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I got a good name for it. If uh, if anyone wants to give us the secret, I'll give a name for the future beer that you can make of this style. Hit us up, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Uh, you can use any subject line you want now, and that email will still reach us. So that's pretty cool. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Winter meeting is coming up next week, so next week's episode might not drop at the usual time, but we will have one next week one way or another. And again, if you listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any place where you can leave us a nice rating and review, we would greatly appreciate that. You can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic if you're not already a subscriber at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That is going to wrap things up for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.